I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, July 11th, 2021, and this is episode 128 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing, uh, the thing that I can talk about, because something else really exciting happened, but the thing I can talk about is that I we finally announced the uh, deal for the heist novel. It's being published by Orbit Books. It's supposed to come out in summer 2022. And they have a really nice blog post on their website for Ar- the publisher Orbit Books. Um, and yeah, it came out today. It was also in the Publishers Marketplace, which is a website that announces book deals. Um, so this is the official, official announcement. It's a two book deal. They are both standalones. I still am not a hundred percent sure what book two is going to be, but the heist novel, and it's called The Monsters We Defy. Uh, so I thought I would just give you a brief recap for anyone who is new. And for those who might have forgotten, now that I can speak completely freely about it. Uh, and it's super exciting. And, um, yeah, I just, I love, I love this idea so much. I don't remember exactly when I got the idea. I was trying to go back. Um, I think it was actually in late 2019, sometime then, when I saw a tweet from some random agent or editor that was like one of those manuscript wish list things that they do. And I think it said Harlem Renaissance Fantasy Heist. And I was like, huh. And that just stuck in my head. At the time, I was still working on Earthsinger Chronicles, the fourth book, still slugging through that. But I was giving a lot of thought to what I wanted my next project to be. Is it one of the many unfinished projects that I have? And I knew I didn't want to start immediately with another long series. I didn't even want to deal with epic fantasy again for a while. You know, Earthsinger Chronicles is seven books. I needed a break. Usually, I would go for a contemporary, so I would have to do a lot less world building. But like I said, this idea was in my head. And so in early 2020, while I was I was on deadline for Requiem of Silence, but as I finished that, um, I started doing research and I started making notes about what this Harlem Renaissance fantasy heist would be. You know, I needed a cast of characters. I needed the crew. I didn't know what they were going to steal. I didn't know anything. I didn't know exactly the year. And at first it was going to be Harlem. And then I was like, the pandemic hit and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to go to Harlem. Uh, I didn't really want to go to New York. <laughs> and then it was like, why can't it be somewhere closer? And as I was doing more and more research about the time period, I had some books from when I was doing this project on Oscar Micheaux, the uh, Black filmmaker from the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Um, this like kind of the premier black black filmmaker who's always intrigued me. Oscar Micheaux is one of the reasons why I decided to self-publish my books first, because he quite famously did a DIY everything. He took his films all around the country himself. He made them himself. He financed them. Um, he, he like did early crowdfunding campaigns, I guess, which a lot of, a lot of black uh, people did to fund anything black. You know, we had to fund it ourselves. Anyway, I had some books on the Harlem Renaissance from that project. And so I was like, looking through those, um, just beginning the process of research and discovered, uh, discovered Black Broadway, essentially. And that was in Washington, D.C., along U Street. Um, since I spent a lot of my youth on U Street in Washington, D.C., 
both during and after going to Howard University. I was like, my family, my mom's family is from DC. She was born there. My grandmother was born here. Um, aunts, uncles, cousins. Harlem is kind of overdone. So why not do DC during the Harlem Renaissance? And as I learned more about DC during that time period, um, that Langston Hughes had lived here, that Gene Toomer lived here, that a lot of the well-known figures from Harlem had come through here, stayed here, did work here, that Black Broadway existed and it was this, this lively force that DC had the largest Black population of any city. And just the more I learned, I just wanted to be in DC and I figured I could actually go down the street. I live in Maryland. Um, and, and walk the streets. And I've, I've actually, I know it so well. Like I don't actually have to go walk the streets because I walked the streets for many years. And that sounds bad. I'm very familiar with especially the U Street corridor uh, in that area of Washington, D.C., Northwest specifically. I decided to set the story there. And then, as is in the um, the blog post from Orbit, which I'll link to in the show notes, in my research, I came across my character, my main character. It was an article from the Washington Post about the 1919 Red Summer D.C. riots, and I didn't realize that there had been DC riots in 1919. As I was doing the research, we were full on in Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, George Floyd protests, Breonna Taylor. And uh, I found this 17-year-old Black girl who had been in her bedroom when the white police officers burst into her house and into her bedroom and shot her. And she shot back and she killed a white police officer. And they arrested her. It was very, like, by the grace of God, she wasn't actually lynched. She was convicted, and she spent um, almost two years in jail. And then she was given a new trial, and then they decided not to move forward with that because they hadn't allowed her to plead self-defense during her trial, her original trial. Um, and the district attorney decided that he wasn't going to get another conviction if she was able to plead self-defense. So she walked out of prison. And uh, I did a lot of work trying to find where she ended up. I think I did find her. I, I found someone with her name who got married. I found some birth announcements of children. I can't be 100% it's the same person because Clara or Carrie Johnson is a very common name. But uh, if this person I did find was her, then she did have children. Um, all of her children died before she did. And then she passed away in uh, the 60s or the 70s. I'd have to check. And her husband passed away fairly early too. So I had this person and not much else is known about her, if that even is her. Um, but she just sparked my imagination, you know, especially because of the Brianna Taylor situation. And it's like, what if Brianna Taylor had shot back and lived? Um, and there's just the parallels, you know, there were so many parallels. I didn't want to tell a story about the riots. I didn't want to necessarily tell a story that, you know, that incident was the heart of it. But I thought, if this is a heroine, you know, she is a, a heroic figure. What does she do after this? What does she do next? And that's how the story kind of came about. Um, lots and lots of research to find the other characters to figure out what kind of magic I would be using to figure out what is the heist about, what are they stealing, what are the consequences, who's the villain, all of that stuff. 
And um, yeah, this was all through spring and summer of 2020. I was plotting, I guess, September, October. I did the first draft for NaNoWriMo. Um, and I think it took a little bit. I might have started in, in late October. I did it in November. And then I started revising in December. And I was done in March. It's kind of funny because on Twitter, when the announcement came out, uh, someone, there's another tweet that someone had made uh, saying like, how writers who write a book a year, how do you do this? And Sarah Pinsker, who uh, I know she's another Baltimore or Maryland person, and she is a very accomplished writer. She's won all of the awards. But we had been on a Zoom call, uh, one of those, a bunch of writers get on Zoom and write together during the pandemic last year. And we talked about, we were both doing research for a 1920s story. And uh, so this, I think it was in the summertime. And she, her tweet was kind of like, yeah, and I'm really impressed by Leslie. Because last year, you know, we were both doing research and her book is finished and announced and I'm still at 15,000 words. And uh, this book really flowed out of me, though. I, once, once the idea started coming, you know, I was really interested in it. I know I had issues, the same as always. Um which is why I record these, because I inevitably forget and then have to kind of go back and remind myself. But um, overall, having, you know, from November to March, that's a really fast book. <laughs> I think it is the fastest thing I've ever written. It also is only 80,000 words at the moment. It is currently with the editor and it might get longer to, with editorial feedback. I didn't, I didn't really know how long it was going to be. Um, I know technically my contract says 100,000 words, so there might be another 20,000 words to come. I don't know. But as it is in this stage, four months for 80,000 words. And that's four months of writing. That doesn't include the research and the plotting time. So that is a bit of like a misnomer or, you know, you can't really take all of that because overall I worked on the book for about a year or or more. Like, But seriously focused research while I was doing other things and then plotting, drafting, revising. And there'll be a, a few more months of revision when it's all said and done. But yeah, I, I'm really glad that it is out in the world as a thing that people know about that I can talk about. <laughs> and it will be actually really in the world as a thing you can read um, next summer, if everything goes according to plan. I'm really excited for... Um, you know, the cover design process, that will be interesting and different. Uh, so far, they've kept my title. The title of The Monsters We Defy comes from a poem by Claude McKay, who was a Harlem Renaissance era, era poet. And the poem is, If We Must Die. And it starts, if we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. It's just the first half, but uh, I wanted that to be the title. And then I was like, ah, it's a fantasy book, but there aren't technically monsters in it. Is this too literary? Is it too much? When I originally pitched it, uh, I had given it a different title. And so what happened was St. Martin's Press had an option on my next book of fantasy. Um, I was working on this one. This was going to be the next book I wrote, no matter who got it. So in the fall of 2020, 
I think I had I had written the first draft and I had polished the first three chapters and sent that with the synopsis as um, my my uh, book proposal for the next book. And it was not accepted. And it was under a different title. And so I finished writing it, polished it up. We identified another place to send it, which was Orbit and Nivea Evans, who is the editor who accepted it. I decided, well, let me just go with the title I really want. And I'll let them tell me if that title is not going to work. And I haven't heard anything differently. So as of now, that's the title. Uh, but yeah, that poem really spoke to me. Um, and even though the book is not about, like in the blog post, I did this author's note and it's, and I said that it's not about black pain. It's about black joy. You know, it's, it's about this event. It's very painful, both physically, emotionally, I'm sure for the character for Carrie, who I use her real name, Clara, even though she went by Carrie. In, in the book, I call her Clara um, because I wanted that layer of separation between the real person and this character. And oddly enough, since she went by Carrie her whole life, using her actual real first name felt to me like a step back from the real human. Um, because I think there are descendants of her still alive, and I wasn't able to actually find them. But in order to maintain sort of a respect for this real person who I've turned into someone else. Anyway, what she must have gone through, being shot herself, killing a cop, no doubt being frightened in in jail for all of those months at 17 years old, and then coming out of it. So the story is not about riots. It's not about white people. There actually aren't any white people in the book. For the most part, there might be some people walking down the street, but like, it's not about racism and pain. It's about a thriving Black community and who obviously every move they make is under the paradigm of racism in America in 1925. I, I said it in 1925 specifically because that is the date of the Klan march in Washington, D.C., where the Ku Klux Klan marched down, Washington, marched down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. And I found those articles and I, I'm in this podcast. If you are a longtime listener, you remember I was talking about an article where there were the day after the march in uh, front page of one of the newspapers, there was an article about pickpockets pickpocketing the Klan during their march. And that is in the book. And I wanted that in the book. So out of all the years of the Harlem Renaissance, I picked that year also because I wanted to include Langston Hughes and I needed a time period when he was living in DC. Um, and it, it matched up. He was in DC until like December of that year. He worked for the, um, Journal of Negro History, as it was called then. Um, and I wanted Dr. Carter Woodson in my book. Another fun fact is that Dr. Carter Woodson, who is the founder of Black History Month, and he did a lot of things, but there's an organization now called the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, ASALA. My grandfather has a chapter of that organization named after him. It is the Bethel Dukes chapter. It's in Washington, D.C., because he was extremely active in that organization, and he knew Dr. Woodson. And I flirted with putting my actual grandparents in this book, and I did not. But I did put Dr. Woodson in, and I wanted that connection, especially because of you know the connection to my grandfather. And like I said, half my family is from D.C., and I grew up in Maryland since I was nine years old. And so, so much of it is personal to me, from my own experiences in the city to those of my family. 
Uh, I got into genealogy when I was doing the research. I was on Ancestry.com, like looking up all of my relatives. Um, partially because of this and because Ancestry, you know, once you're on the Library of Congress, once you're looking at old newspapers, you're looking at birth certificates, you're looking at census records. There's lots of information, especially since I couldn't go to any libraries during the research of this. Um, and so I was just doing anything online I could find. But having those sort of personal connections and drawing on them in those ways and learning a lot, you know, I learned so much during this process. I'd always been afraid of research and of setting something in the real world because being able to make things up is so much easier. I mean, it's hard, but it's also, you're not beholden to anyone. You know, um, I know historical writers hear a lot from readers who are experts or armchair experts about anachronism and especially black authors. Um, it seems like we get a lot of criticism and, uh, attention <laughs> and call outs and pushback about things. Uh, so that might be on the horizon. I don't know, but I did. I, I really loved the research pro process. I loved going down the rabbit holes. It was so fascinating. One of the cool things that, um, and I'm sure I'll talk about this more again when the book comes out or is closer when I'm actually doing promo, but an important thing that from that was left over from my research of Oscar Michaud that made it into this book, um, I, I've been ordering some used books. So when I was researching Oscar Michaud and his films, I bought this book called The Black Valentino, The Stage and Screen Career of Lorenzo Tucker. And it is a thin little volume that I was apparently in a library and they sold it and I got it used. And it's about this actor, Lorenzo Tucker. And it has interviews from Lorenzo Tucker's, who, you know, I guess he was kind of famous for being a, a colored actor in the 20s and 30s. It has interviews with his family members, like aunts and, and people he grew up with who would never have been interviewed any other place. Like these interviews aren't going to appear someplace. And I mean, obviously has interviews with him too, but like there were just little details that I found from these interviews with these old people. <laughs> and I actually use his hometown. I use things from, from like, this is just an example of the details that you can get from kind of first town accounts that have nothing to do with what I was writing about. It's just like real stuff from real people that aren't famous you know, like the interview with his aunties who from Virginia in some place. And that became, I just like, I remember reading that. I had read it like a year or two ago and I went back through this for whatever reasons I remembered it and pulled out details and used those as the backstory for two of the characters in this book. And yeah, it was just a lot of fun learning about how people lived back then and, and thinking about how, what is it like to live in 1925? What does that even mean? Um, researching, you know, when the streetlights turned from gas to electric in D.C., I knew that there were streetcars at that time. I'm, there were streetcars when my mom was a kid, but they were in, they were definitely prevalent then, looking up the streetcar routes, trying to figure out how would someone get from U Street Northwest down to the, the Library of Congress or to the D.C. jail. All kinds of stuff. I could go on and on, but yes, it was a lot of work. And I was trying to make sure that everything I did was really grounded. So with like one or two exceptions, 
any business or place I name in the book is real and it's in its real location. Um, I did a lot of research. I built my own map of places so I could be like, oh, and then she stopped in here to eat. And then she came here and I, and I know the routes that she would walk to get to places and get from home to work and things like that. Um, and I liked doing that. I liked grounding it as much as possible, even though, you know, these people have powers. There's this magic system that is grounded in actual, you know, folk magic, hoodoo, whatever you want to call it, conjure, uh, from the black community. But I have a different take on it. And I, yeah, I'm just, I, I just love the story. I love this idea. The reception, at least on social media, has been really, really positive and people seem excited to read it. So. I'm looking forward to the revisions that are coming sometime soon and making sure that the book is up to snuff. I can't wait to see what my editor says and get dive back into it when the time is right. <laughs> also, uh, while I work on Savage City, which is going pretty well, I am revising that. I am planning to be done this week. That is the goal. I have four chapters left to revise. I took a couple days off this week because I was just feeling, uh, but I worked on it yesterday. I don't know if I'll work on it today or not, but definitely this week, I think I can get those four chapters done. Then it's just like a review. There's some foreshadowing that I need to do and some layering in earlier for some things that I discovered as I'm writing the end. And then I'll send it off to the editor earlier than my pushed back deadline, I'm hoping. Also, I've been working on plotting the 1830 story, still working on that every day a little bit. Although this week, I'm going to just take time off of it so I can focus 100% on Savage City, get that done. Then I can put 100% of my energy back into this plot. And, you know, I, I wanted to be done with it by now, but I guess my new deadline, my, my new self-imposed deadline for that is going to be the end of the month. It's been tricky. It's been tricky. Um, taking the feedback re that I got on the, the original synopsis that I submitted and just wrapping my head around it, trying to take the feedback, like ingest it, figure out the changes, who these characters are, and what is the plot. Another note that I had gotten is that it didn't have enough twists and turns. And I've been really struggling because the one person, the feedback I've gotten on the heist book on Monsters We Defy was it included something about twists and turns. And I have a feeling I'm going to have to go back and add some more into that book as well. So... I am light on twists and turns. I don't know that I, that's a thing that I've done a lot of, you know, I don't have any in, in Song of Blood and Stone, there is like not a twist, but like a reveal. And I don't know, I guess for some, for some people, I think they are surprised. Um, but I don't do a lot of that in my books and I don't think it's natural to me. So I have to learn how to do that. And that'll be really interesting for both of these books. But yeah, that's me. That's it. That's what I'm thinking about. It's hard to get things done when things like a book announcement happened at the end of the week because you're fielding social media comments and responses. And the other things that were happening this week were very distracting. Um, good news, but just distracting news. It's hard to focus when you have a lot of things on your mind and you're thinking about the possibilities and what's going to happen. So that's where I have been. I'm trying to get back focused and juggle all the things I have to do. I have a list of things to do and I got like zero of them done this week. Well, I got one of them done, which is sad. I mean, none of them were hard deadlines, but things are going to start piling up and I'm going to be doing a lot more travel August, September, October. Um, so 
I have to start clearing my head, getting back into my productivity systems, doing the things that are on my to-do list. Isn't that novel? (laughs) Actually crossing them off. But yeah, a lot of good things happening. Also, we saw Black Widow. I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. It had a lot of heart. It had um, maybe too much action. Like sometimes action is just tedious and you're just like, okay, can they finish the fight already and move back to the story? But overall, I really enjoyed Black Widow. And um, yeah, there is a a post-credit scene that makes the most sense if you've seen the Falcon and the Winter Soldier TV show. That's all I'll say about that. But yeah, a lot of fun. I've been seeing mixed reviews about it and some of the criticisms I don't get or understand, or they're just criticisms inherent to a movie that is a prequel where you already know what happens to this character in uh, Avengers Endgame. So you're not going to really feel like she's in mortal danger in any of these fights that she's in. And that's just inherent to prequels. But it had a lot of like emotionality and heart to it. And I really did appreciate that about it. So that's it for me for this week. Um, my goal, finish Savage City this week. That is the the main thing I'm going to put all my focus on. And get this to-do list shaved down a bit. <sighs> yes. So I hope that you have a wonderful week. And I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on youtube my imaginary friends is part of the frolic podcast network for more fantastic podcasts go to frolic.media slash podcasts <laughs>